Hello everyone and welcome to Singularity Podcast. Singularity Podcast is a feature of Singularity Weblog where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. As you may already know, my name is Socrates and as always, I will be the man with the questions. Today, I'm privileged to have Dr. Aubrey de Grey as my guest with the answers. Dr. de Grey is a controversial author, gerontologist and chief science officer at the Sense Foundation and is most famous for his quest to defeat aging. Hi Aubrey and welcome to Singularity Podcast. It is great to have you here today. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for being here Aubrey. I know that your time is most valuable and thus I will jump straight into the questions by asking you this. Can you please tell us a little bit, a little bit about yourself, such as your background and your education, but especially why and how you got interested in becoming a gerontologist in general and decided to begin your campaign to defeat aging in particular? Well, I actually did not start as a biologist at all. Originally, my training as an undergraduate was in computer science. And I got into that field because I was interested in helping to develop artificial intelligence. In other words, to develop computers that would relieve humanity of the tedious business of having to do manual labor like going down mines or other uh, pointless jobs like serving hamburgers. Uh, I felt that it was important to try to develop these machines and give humanity the opportunity to spend our time doing things we're good at, like enriching each other's lives. And I still think that that is an extremely important quest. However, about 20 years ago, I met, and shortly after that, I married a biologist, a geneticist, who was a professor at the University of California in San Diego. And over the next few years, first of all, I learned a lot of biology, just sort of by accident over the dinner table. And secondly, I gradually began to understand that very few biologists were actually interested in aging which surprised me enormously and horrified me because it has always been obvious to me that aging is very bad for you and also that in principle it can be treated by medical intervention. So I eventually decided that this was an even more important problem for me to work on than artificial intelligence. And so around 1994-95 I switched fields. So was that a very hard transition to move from computer science into biology? Actually, no, I was very lucky in that way. First of all, from the point of view of the actual subject matter, um, I think it's important to understand that research is a very transferable skill. It's something that if you're good at it in one discipline, you can pretty quickly get good at it in another discipline just by learning, um, just, by, you know, just by reading the literature and generally getting to know what's already known. Um, secondly, my circumstances at that time were very conducive to being able to change fields because at that time I had taken an extremely undemanding uh, database job, basically a bioinformatics job at the University of Cambridge, which gave me plenty of access to all the university facilities and so on, but which did not really take too much of my time or at least not my energy. So I had plenty of spare quality time to spend doing research. And actually, I was doing artificial intelligence research in my spare time during that time, up until about 94. Um, 
which was easy simply to reallocate to this new subject. And what was the main motivation behind your change of fields and your consequent work? Um, is it scientific curiosity? Is it uh, humanitarian? Is it a religious one? I see. Yeah, it's definitely humanitarian. I have always been driven by that sort of thinking. I have always been focused on making a difference to the world. I think that if I personally were to benefit from the therapies that I'm hoping to help develop, then, uh, you know, that's great, but that's not why I'm doing it. I don't feel that there is really any particular religious motivation either way. I mean, I certainly think that this work is in accord with the teachings of the major religions, but it's certainly not the reason why I'm doing this. Um, and also, I'm not really driven by just the quest for knowledge either. I think for me, I've always regarded myself more as a technologist than as a basic scientist. I'm interested in developing knowledge for the sake of improving people's quality of life rather than just for its own sake. So it seems that in that case, for you, probably the most important thing would be the results, the actual outcome of your work. Is that correct? Absolutely. So what would be the ultimate goal or the ultimate end in that case for you? The ultimate goal really is to keep people healthy as long as they live. At the moment, it's pretty clear that a lot of bad things go wrong with us when we get old. And these are health problems that people really don't enjoy. I never meet anyone who actually wants to get Alzheimer's disease, for example. So I simply want to work to help people to avoid the diseases of old age, however long they live. Now, a lot of people misunderstand this because they realize that a lot of what I do involves thinking about the possibility of people living a lot longer. But that's not why I work on this. I don't work on longevity. People will live a lot longer if the therapies that I'm describing are successfully developed. But that will be a side benefit. The main purpose of all this is simply to keep people healthy. That's great, but aren't you at least a little bit concerned that a natural or man-made disaster such as nuclear war or uh, global warming or some other uh, huge natural catastrophe would kind of negate or destroy the, the sort of results of your work, even if you're successful in it? I don't really think that natural disasters or anything like that would remotely negate this work. No, I think that we are definitely, as a, as a population, as a, as, a, as a species, we are definitely blessed with a survival instinct, with the desire to remain healthy and alive as long as we can. And, you know, if things do happen that are out of our control, then so be it. However, I do think, uh, in a point perhaps related to your question, that there is a good chance that we would be able to allocate more effort, so to speak, to the actual um, attempt to avoid death from other causes, whether it be natural disasters or um, pandemics or, um, you know, uh, even road accidents. And, and I think that would be a good thing too. I think if we uh, um, assign greater value to life as a result of this work. I see. 
And uh, what would be the, the benchmarks that uh, would show that you would that you have either succeeded or failed in accomplishing your goals? Well, I don't really think it's a matter of succeeding or failing. I think it's really simply a matter of how rapidly we succeed. I'm approaching this problem in a particular way, namely the application of regenerative medicine to the problem of aging. And other people are approaching it in different ways, including, for example, the development of nanotechnology, or for that matter, the development of artificial intelligence, which may create computers that are smarter than us and therefore that can solve that problem more quickly than we can. Um, so I think that it's great that all of these approaches are being tried. And I think that the measure of success will simply be how rapidly we succeed, not whether we succeed. However, if we look at the milestones that are going to happen on the way to success, I think we can point to some, some things, certainly with respect to the approach that I'm taking, the application of regenerative medicine to the problem of aging. I think that the most important milestone will be the development of these therapies that can be applied to mice, because mice are the most important model organism in biology. They are fairly similar to humans because they are mammals, but they, of course, live a lot less long than humans. And yet they get more. They get many of the same problems as we do and uh, during old age. So I think that if we can take normal mice and do absolutely nothing at all to them until they are perhaps two thirds of the way through their normal lifespan, and then if we can do a whole lot of things to them, regenerative things, rejuvenation technologies to them at that point, with the result that they remain healthy for maybe an extra couple of years longer than normal, then we will have definitely demonstrated that the regenerative medicine approach to combating aging can work. We will know at that point that it's really definitely only a matter of time before it works for human beings as well. At that point, I feel that my work will really have been done because there will be a full-blown war on aging. Everyone will know not only that this is an important goal, but broadly how to go about it. And the money will certainly be no object. And there will be plenty of people who are much better than me at all the things I'm supposed to be good at who will be participating in that effort at that point. So how does the Sense Foundation fit into your work and your... Um general goals? Well, at the moment, the main thing that we're doing is to fill in the gaps, so to speak, to actually, um, I don't know, uh, identify the things that are being most neglected, but which we feel are nevertheless indispensable components of a panel of interventions that would really successfully combat aging. And there are lots of those gaps right now. There are some aspects of, um, of regenerative medicine that are well understood in terms of their value and increasingly well understood in terms of their value in combating aging, combating aspects of aging. Um, in particular, stem cell therapy comes to mind. Of course, that's a very big field. There are lots and lots of people working on it. It's well funded. Um, however, there are other areas such as for example, what I like to call molecular regenerative medicine, the removal of accumulated garb molecular garbage inside cells and also in the spaces between cells. Those are areas of regenerative medicine that so far 
not very many people understand the value of or even the feasibility of. And so there are areas which we are paying much more attention to and putting as much funding as we can into. And was that not, and was that not the topic of your book, The Free Mitochondrial Theory of Aging? The topic of my book in 2000, or actually in 1999, was in fact a slightly different thing. It was the accumulation of mutations in the mitochondrial DNA. That's another area which is sort of known to be very likely, at least, to be involved in the process of aging in mammals. But people haven't really paid very much attention to it, partly because it is not clear how the details of the mechanism of how it actually contributes to particular diseases of old age. And secondly, because people have been rather in despair with regard to actually how to fix it. Um, you know, the, the, it's not really clear how we could actually go about reversing the accumulation of mitochondrial mutations. But about 25 years ago, there was a big breakthrough in this area uh, when someone showed, someone in Australia, in fact, showed that it was possible to relocate one of the 13 protein coding genes from the mitochondrial DNA into the nuclear DNA, the normal DNA. They only did this for one gene, and they did it in yeast rather than in humans. And of course, they only did it in cell culture, not in a live mammal. Um, but it was a proof of concept. And what I've been able to do, and which I talked about extensively in the book you refer to, is to revive interest in this area, in this possibility. And at the moment, there is quite a lot of interest in this area. There have been one or two very important breakthroughs in the past few years, which mean that the whole idea of relocating all 13 of the mitochondrial protein coding genes to the nucleus, even in people who are already alive, is not nearly so ambitious and you know, science fiction-y as people have historically thought. I see. So it seems that your book actually managed to spark some interest and further or deeper research into that specific field. Well, I wouldn't want to say, it wouldn't want to take too much of the credit, but certainly I feel that I've made a bit of a difference to influencing people's research priorities. It's not just with the book, of course. I've done a lot in terms of simply bringing the right scientists together. Science in, in general, and certainly biology, tends to get over-fragmented, uh, over-balkanized. Uh, and the result is that people just don't hear about each other's work, even when it could be very valuable to their own work. So I try to identify cases where people's work may, may be in this sort of situation, and I bring people together, whether it's just informally in private meetings or whether it's at conferences, or also that's one of the big um, roles of the journal that I edit, Rejuvenation Research. So is that the function of the Sense Foundation to, as you said, fill in the gaps or put the pieces together so that there could be progress towards the goal of defeating aging and extending a healthy human life? I, I, I would say that is basically it, yes. I regard the Sense Foundation as the hub of the um, rejuvenation biotechnology effort. We are out there to make sure that all the various components of rejuvenation biotechnology are actually developed in as soon as possible, and that none of them gets neglected simply because it looks too hard or people don't understand why it should be valuable or whatever.
So in general, we don't fund things that we don't need to fund because they're already being done, but we try to make sure that everything that is not is being neglected by other people gets pushed forward as quickly as possible. And what about those who criticize you that your function in that case is one of management, management or coordination rather than uh, hard science? Oh, I don't think there's much danger of that criticism because we definitely are funding a lot of hard science. I mean, I personally spend a lot of my time doing interviews like this, for example, or giving lectures around the world, uh, or for that matter, just speaking to potential donors, uh, just as a way of educating the general public as well as, um, as, well as the scientific community. Uh, but the people that we fund are indeed doing very hard science. We have a an in-house laboratory of our own in California, and we also fund a variety of projects in universities around the world. So absolutely, we are a regular funding body in that way. That's fantastic. So why don't you give some more information to those of our listeners who are interested to find out more about the Sense Foundation in general, or even are willing to donate and contribute to your cause? Sure. Well, of course, the most important thing to do is go to our website, www.sense.org. That's S-E-N-S, of course, not S-E-N-S-E. Um, and you'll find all about, all about the research that we do there. Uh, but to give a brief summary, uh, I guess our flagship program, research program, is what we call LysoSense, the approach that we have taken to the elimination of molecular garbage that accumulates inside cells. It turns out that that problem, which happens in different ways in different types of cell, is a major cause, in fact, the major cause of some of the most important diseases of old age. In particular, it's definitely the main cause of cardiovascular disease and also macular degeneration, which is the major cause of blindness in the elderly. And we are adopting an approach which involves identifying other species, typically bacteria, that are able to break down the compounds that accumulate in these various cell types and cause the cells eventually to stop working, um, and then to identify the genes that those species have which allow them to break down these things. When we can do that, we can transfer those genes with some subtle modifications uh, to mammalian cells, to normal human cells in cell culture first and then uh, potentially to mice in the laboratory, to live mice, and eventually, of course, to humans themselves. And this project has been going quite well for quite a long time. We've got pretty good at finding bacteria that can break down things that we don't like the look of. And we've also got pretty good at finding the genes that allow them to do it. We are now focused mainly on step three, the transferring of those genes to mammalian cells in culture. And we have three researchers working on that right now in our laboratory in California. We also have two more working on it in Houston at Rice University. So that's our biggest project at the moment. That is very interesting indeed. So uh, has Craig Venture's most recent synthetic biology discovery or his previous work on the Human Genome Project had any impact on your direct work or the field that you're working in, in general? I'm not sure whether Craig's work on synthetic biology is really directed in this sort of way. 
So uh, he got a great deal of publicity recently, of course, for transferring the genome of one type of um, bacterium into another one and getting the new bacterium to be essentially reprogrammed by the new DNA. And of course, he made a great deal of play out of the fact that the new genome had actually been synthesized from scratch rather than simply extracted from the other species. Um, but really, this doesn't tell us any actual information that we didn't know about how particular genes work or how particular enzymes work. However, there is plenty of other work that Craig and indeed other synthetic biologists are doing that could indeed have plenty of relevance to all of this. Simply, simply the work that Craig is doing, identifying environmental DNA, you know, just trawling the oceans for sequences that appear to be to encode strange new enzymes, for example, that is definitely something that could be relevant to all of this. Very interesting. And what about the move from biology to synthetic biology? And it would be very interesting to find out since uh, you started out as a computer scientist rather than a pure biologist, uh, it would be very interesting to find out what is your take on the parallels being drawn between computer science and software programming and biology and some of the claims such as uh, the claim that cells are software driven biological machines and uh, DNA is a biological code similar to the code of uh, software programming. Um. I think I think we have to be very careful with that analogy. It's an easy analogy to make, and a lot of people make it. I think some people take it a bit too far. The difficulty, of course, is that the DNA code is not like source code. It's like object code, which is very, very hard to understand without any comments or anything. And most of the work that we have to do is in the line of understanding how the code works, which is not something that synthetic biology is yet very good at. In fact, quite recently, the 10-year anniversary of the sequencing of the human genome was celebrated, and Craig Venter again, of course, and also Francis Collins, who um, was heading the public genome sequencing efforts, were um, at pains to emphasize and certainly to admit that the actual practical outcome of having the human genome has so far been pretty modest. I'm quite sure that as time goes on, and as more experiments get done more rapidly and more easily as a result of having such good sequencing technology, we will indeed benefit progressively more and more. But I think so far, synthetic biology or indeed the general concept of biology as information is still very much in its infancy. In that case, would you say that so far the the perception or, or the presumption behind synthetic biology is unproven? I think, I think un unproven is a fine word, yes. I think I'm optimistic about the informatic, the, the, the bioinformatics future, so to speak. But I think, yes, it's in its infancy. I see. Let me move on to another dimension of your work, and that is the religious implications. If you are successful in your quest to defeat aging. Uh, so first of all, do you have any religious affiliations yourself? I don't have any religious affiliation myself, no. I think personally, however, that the arguments 
um, about the relationship between this work and religion are actually pretty clear. And they are simply that not only is this work compatible with Holy Scripture, it's actually mandated by Holy Scripture. It, in other words, it would be a sin not to work on all of this. Because the fact is, aging is bad for you. Aging causes a great deal of suffering, and it kills people. And scriptures of all the major religions are pretty unequivocal that we have a duty, a moral, a moral obligation to work to minimize suffering. We can think in the Christian tradition, for example, about the parable of the Good Samaritan, where we hear about people who walked by on the other side and did nothing when someone was suffering, and they are compared unfavorably to the Good Samaritan who took the trouble to actually help. I think the situation is exactly the same here. We have a moral obligation to help. Now, of course, some people are inclined to have a sort of knee-jerk reaction about this when they hear about the possibility that we might extend lives a lot. And they'll say, well, hang on, this is sort of playing God. It's taking our um, lives out of God's control. But that's complete nonsense, of course. You know, if, if God exists and is omnipotent, then God can perfectly well strike you down with a thunderbolt, however healthy you are. So we're not changing anything in that regard. Now, of course, some people may take a sort of, if you like, a secretly selfish um, attitude. They may say, well, you know, there's this heaven that they're going to, that's such a so much better a place to be than we are down here. Um, and therefore, they don't want this technology that might delay their um, transition to the next world. But of course, that's also sinful, according to the major scriptures, in the same way that one's not supposed to commit suicide. So, you know, whatever way you look at it, it's pretty damn clear that this is something that is God's work. And there may indeed be some hesitation on the part of the major religions, simply because they will see how very profoundly society will be altered. And perhaps they will feel that from a purely administrative point of view, their power in, the, in this world, their, their influence may decline. But... In terms of actual theological dogma, I think it's completely clear that any such arguments will be very short-lived and that there will in due course be very strong support for this work from major religions. If you don't have any religious affiliation, would you say that you're an atheist in that case? I would prefer to say that I'm an agnostic. I've always felt since I was quite young that it didn't matter to me whether God exists or not because it seemed to me that the sorts of things that I had already decided I wanted to do with my life, basically, as I mentioned earlier, humanitarian things, were clearly what I would be doing whether or not I believed in God, and therefore it wasn't something that I needed to spend time making a decision on. And how do you respond to those of your critics who blame you for modeling yourself as a Jesus Christ type of a figure who is promising immortality to the masses? Well, of course, I don't think much of any description of my work that uses the word immortality, because I'm not working on immortality. I'm working on keeping people healthy, as I said earlier. And people, I'm not working on stopping people from being hit by trucks or any other cause of death. I'm just working on one cause of death. Um, some people like to say that I look a bit like Jesus, but, well, they say that about a lot of people, so I don't really pay much attention to that. As far as I'm concerned, all I'm doing is the same as what any other technologist is doing. I'm trying to improve people's quality of life. And I don't think it's very easy to criticize that. Speaking of people's quality of life, would you mind giving some specific tips or advice to our listeners who are 
probably interested in being healthy for as long as possible until the moment that we do have those technologies that you're describing and that you're working on, which would allow them to extend their life almost indefinitely. Yeah, this is an important question, of course. What can one do to maximize one's chances of making the cut, so to speak, being around long enough, healthy enough for these technologies to arrive to actually postpone ill health of old age indefinitely? Um, and the bad news is that at the moment we've basically got nothing. Uh, that's not completely the, uh, true because if you happen to be unlucky, if you happen to have drawn some some short straws genetically, so to speak, so that, for example, you are the sort of person who would come down with type 2 diabetes in your 30s, there are such people, then um, there, there do seem to be things that we can do to help normalize your um, your rate of aging in that particular way so that that may indeed considerably extend your healthy lifespan. Um, also, of course, there are plenty of well-known ways to shorten one's lifespan, smoking, getting overweight, for example, um, and avoiding those works, but that's not something I need to tell you, of course. Um, so if we ask the more pertinent question, what can we do today that may not be obvious, you know, what unusual supplements might there be that might add 10 years to life, or, for example, there just aren't any. The evidence is pretty overwhelming that nothing really exists that can help in this way. So I think that actually the best thing that people can do today to maximize their chances of being around long enough for these therapies is simply to work at the other end of the equation. In other words, to do what they can to hasten the development of these therapies. And of course, different people can do that in different ways. If you, well, if you run a podcast, you can have it. You can you can have me on the show so that I can educate you and your listeners, and maybe some of them will have some things that they can do. If you're a scientist, of course, you can get into the right areas of biotechnology so that you can help actually on the ground, so to speak, at the coalface to develop these things. Um, you know, different people can do different things, but everybody can do advocacy. Everybody can talk to their friends and colleagues and neighbors and family about these things and generally get people to understand more properly what we are actually trying to do so that they no longer have these really appalling knee-jerk reactions, negative reactions to something that, in fact, when you understand it, is unequivocally a good thing. Well, speaking of genetically unfortunate people, since Ray Kurzweil developed diabetes in his late 30s or early 40s, he would probably qualify as being one of those. However, he was arguably successful at reprogramming his biology after taking over 200 different types of supplements each and every day and supposedly was able to cure himself from diabetes. Furthermore, in his latest book together with Terry Grossman called Transcend, he puts forward a nine-step program which in his opinion would allow us or those of us who decide to follow the program uh, to basically live long enough to live forever. And yet somehow that seems to be at odds with what you just said, isn't it? Yes, I think it's fair to say that I do somewhat disagree with Ray and Terry on that score. I think that they are 
rather over-optimistic about the effect that today's therapies can have, today's supplements and so on, can have on people who are already of average health and therefore who are in line to get to the age of 80 in pretty good health, whatever they do. Um, I think that perhaps Ray has been swayed too much by his own success um, as a result, as you say, of having been able to keep his diabetes at bay for 30 years, having come down with it very young. Um, but I want to emphasize that I very strongly agree with what Ray, especially, and also Terry say um, about subsequent work. Uh, that, that You mentioned that they describe the things that we can do today as a bridge to future technologies, and I completely agree with that. I think that their bridge too, which is essentially biotechnology, is precisely what's going to happen. In fact, they largely echo the types of biotechnology that I have been particularly emphasizing. And I also agree with their bridge three, the increasing use of what we might call non-biological solutions to medical problems. I think that's also going to happen down the road. But I think in the short term, the benefits that average people will get from things that, from supplements and such like that we can take already are really very slight. One might get a year if one's very lucky. And of course, that's better than nothing. So I'm definitely not saying that people shouldn't do what Ray and Terry say or what other people say that they should do. I think the only thing I would really say is that it's very important not to generalize too much. The single most important um, piece of advice in terms of one's health that I can give anybody is to pay attention to your own body, to be as knowledgeable as you can, yes, but ultimately not to just do what a book tells you, over an, uh, overriding what seems to work, seems to make you feel healthy. And what about Ray's claim that he has managed to successfully reprogram his body's biology? I, I think that in, his, in terms of his own biology, that's a somewhat melodramatic description perhaps, but strictly speaking, I wouldn't really argue with it. I think that diabetes is a very pervasive disease. It's something that affects the whole of one's metabolism in one way or another. And if one can reset one's diabetic state, then I think that's a reasonable description of reprogramming, reasonable, um, can reasonably be described as reprogramming one's biology, yes. Since we're already discussing Ray Kurzweil, this is probably the best time to ask you, um, how do you think the technological singularity relates to your work? The relationship between the technological singularity and my work is something that has many dimensions to it, in fact. Um, so many that actually I um, have been occasionally uh, persuaded to actually give a talk specifically comparing those two things. Um, you probably know that some years ago I identified a concept that I named longevity escape velocity, which is basically the point, uh, the, 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 the development of incremental refinements to the rejuvenation biotechnologies that I'm working on at a sufficient rate that we essentially stay, stop, stay one step ahead of the problem indefinitely. So when we, for example, develop technologies that can postpone the ill health of old age by 30 years, when they are applied to people who are already in middle age, let's say 60, that means that we'll be taking people who are 60 and rejuvenating them fairly well so that they won't be biologically 60 again until they are chronologically 90. And 
if we can achieve longevity escape velocity, what that means is that in those 30 years, we will improve those technologies sufficiently so that when they are chronologically 90, even though they are intrinsically harder to rejuvenate because the types of damage that are present in the body will predominantly be ones that the therapies didn't work on, um, nevertheless, the technology will have been improved by an amount that outweighs that so that we can re-rejuvenate them more thoroughly the second time than we could the first time. Okay, so that's longevity escape velocity. And a couple of years ago, a friend of mine said, well, we really need a word for the point at which we reach longevity escape velocity, the point at which we start to develop and improve these technologies faster than the damage is catching up with us. And he liked to call that point the methuselarity. I rather like that word. It's a bit hard to say, but obviously it has um, echoes of the singularity. So the question then is, what are the similarities and differences between the singularity and the methuselarity? And I think they're quite interesting. The thing about the methuselarity in terms of its in terms of actual um, technological function is that it's actually rather undramatic compared to the singularity, which of course is very dramatic when we go from having computers that are fairly clever to suddenly having computers that are pretty much infinitely clever. Um, in the methuselarity, basically we just carry on incrementally improving things and eventually we're improving them a little bit faster than before and it's fast enough to stay one step ahead of the problem. And the result, however, is the other way around. The human impact of the singularity may be very slight because we will go from having computers that are already extremely clever and which we don't really have to treat as computers in the way that at least the pioneers of computing used to think of computers, we'll go from there to a point where that just becomes a little bit more true and computers are so clever that they blend even more thoroughly into our background. Whereas in the case of the methuselarity, the effect will be extraordinarily dramatic. We'll go from being able to stay healthy just a little bit longer and a little bit longer and then going into age-related decline just as we do today to a point where suddenly we are not in prospect of going into age-related ill health however long we live. So the, the comparisons and contrasts are actually quite dramatic, and I think it's quite useful to think of those things. I'm glad you asked the question. And since we're kind of on the topic, what do you think about the blending between biology and technology? I, I think the blending of, if you like, non-biological um, um, silicon-based technology with biology is going to be a very large part of what I described earlier as the use of non-biological solutions for medical problems. Of course, we're already very familiar with a couple of very nice cases of non-biological solutions. Um, probably the, the one that's talked about most is the cochlear implant, which is used to restore hearing to people who have got certain types of profound deafness. And I think that some people are predicting at this point that within only a few years, the quality of cochlear implants will rise so rapidly that people who have those things will actually be able to hear better than people with natural hearing. So that's going to be pretty interesting. The possibility of, uh, of concert pianists deliberately having, you know, elective insertion of cochlear implants may come along, for example. Um, so I think that's a sort of, you know, a proof of concept of the idea. 
And it seems pretty clear that miniaturization of a variety of different non-biological technologies, including medical ones, is something that's going to carry on um, happening. And of course, the logical endpoint of that miniaturization process is molecular manufacturing, which is something that has certainly been applied theoretically to a whole variety of different medical problems, especially by the enormously comprehensive work of Rob Freitas and Ralph Merkel. And what about the potential impact of medical nanobots or the uh, alleged transition of our species as a predominantly biologically based species to one that could potentially migrate to become a virtual or a silicon-based one? I haven't been investigating that myself, no. I like to keep up with it. I'm always very interested when I hear lectures on that topic from my friends and colleagues in the field, but I've got my hands full with the straightforward biotechnological work at the moment. But don't you agree that any such potential transition from biology to uh, be it virtual reality or silicon-based or, or what others have called becoming uploads would have great impacts on uh, your own work and on your own field? I mean, we already do know how to pretty much upkeep and maintain computers indefinitely by replacing their broken parts and so on. And thus, if we move from biology to become silicon-based, for example, or software-based uh, entities, then in a way that would fulfill your quest to extend uh, the healthy life uh, span of, of humanity. I think you're absolutely right. I think that that is certainly one scenario in which aging would be defeated. Another scenario in which aging would be defeated would be the creation of friendly artificial general intelligence, in which we had simply robots and other completely external devices which were able to make our lives completely safe, both medically and in terms of the, availability, the possibility of accidents or asteroid impacts or whatever. Um, despite the fact that we are made out of this squishy stuff. Uh, you know, there are lots of scenarios. Um, I think, however, that what that tells us is that it's very important for all of the potential scenarios that could um, extend our healthy lives to be pursued aggressively by the various specialists on those areas of technology, because we just don't know which of these things is going to come first. Personally, my hunch is that the development of biotechnology that can achieve longevity escape velocity is going to be easier and going to happen more quickly than the development of molecular manufacturing and therefore the development oh, and certainly the development of anything as ambitious as uploading um but if i'm wrong then that's fine by me well singularity weblog's tagline is the question will technology replace biology and I have the tradition of asking all of my podcast guests to answer that question. So, in your opinion, will technology replace biology? If I had to guess about the sequence of events, so to speak, the, uh, the, about what would actually happen uh, and what our priorities would be for subsequent things to happen, then my answer would be no. I think that what's likely to occur is, first of all, we will get biotechnology of the sort that I'm working on that will allow us to maintain health 
as long as we like, just so long as we stay out of the way of asteroids and trucks and so on. Then thereafter, we will develop, in fact, perhaps around the same time, computers with the ability to protect us very, very thoroughly indeed from all types of physical danger and indeed infectious diseases, for example, so that we essentially eliminate all causes of death and indeed of disease um, and injury. Once we've got to that point, the motivations for developing technologies such as uploading will be somewhat diminished, I think. We can imagine that there will be certain motivations for doing so in terms of, for example, uh, allowing our intelligence to be enhanced much more. But we already have technologies for enhancing our intelligence externally, so to speak, such as the internet, for example. And I think it's very possible that we will adopt an attitude, I'm not saying everybody, but perhaps most of humanity anyway, an attitude that actually we prefer to be human rather than to develop too rapidly into something that might be called post-human. So personally, I suspect that we will continue to um, remain biological pretty much indefinitely. One of the arguments behind the development of upload technology is the argument that this is a technology that we will inevitably have to develop, provided that we are interested in space travel and especially intergalactic uh, space travel. I, I, I think that's perfectly clear. I think that it would be very difficult indeed to facilitate intergalactic space travel without that sort of technology. But the question then is, who actually wants to actually undertake intergalactic space travel? Um, personally, it doesn't really attract me very much. And, you know, space is a rather unfriendly place to be. I think that so long as we can develop technologies that allow our quality of life down here in the solar system to be as high as we like, the motivation to go elsewhere may be rather limited. Yes, but what about Stephen Hawking's latest argument that in the long run, we must either spread throughout the universe and conquer other planets and other worlds, or basically face extinction here on our own planet one way or another? Ah, yes. But let's be clear. The assumptions that Stephen was making were very different from the ones that you and I are making here. If we talk about a scenario in which we have developed artificial general intelligence of the nature that um, the people who work in that area describe, in other words, friendly AI that um, has our interests at heart, but that has the property of recursive self-improvement so that it becomes pretty much uh, unimaginably powerful, and of course, unimaginably powerful in terms of its physical um, prowess as well as its intellectual prowess, then we have a scenario in which the assumptions that Hawking made really don't apply anymore. I think it's very hard to imagine, for example, that it would take more than a decade or even a year for full-blown artificial general intelligence to develop technologies that would completely eliminate the prospect of an asteroid impact. I think it's extremely hard to imagine that it would take more than a thousand years for such technology to develop ways to defuse nearby stars that might be in danger of exploding, for example. So there are a lot of reasons why Hawking could easily be completely wrong. I see. 
that's an important distinction to make between our starting point and uh, Stephen Hawking's starting point. And um, I think it's a, it's a, it makes perfect sense to me. Uh, but what about the general risks or dangers of a technological singularity? How do you see that as an option? Personally, I just don't know. I think that it certainly depends how we define the singularity. So the, I think the most popular definition among people who, um, who talk about this is the one that I've been using so far in this interview, namely the development of recursively improving artificial general intelligence. And if that were developed, then I've got to say I'm not very optimistic. I think that it's very unlikely that the that any any truly recursively self-improving system can be made genuinely friendly in a an invariant way, as Elliot Yudkowsky likes to describe it. Now, I freely admit that this is really just a hunch, and I can't back it up with any profound, you know, uh, robust argument. But that is my hunch that a f truly friendly AGI with recursive self-improvement is not possible. However, the good news is that my other hunch is that I think that truly recursively self-improving AI is probably not possible either. I think that it is a mistake to regard uh, the human brain, for example, as, um, as an existence proof that recursively self-improving AI is possible. I think that the difference here is that you know, it's easy enough to write self-modifying code or code that, or programs that write other programs. But the programs that are written or the parts of programs that are self-modifying are, you know, a lot simpler than the programs that do the writing or the self-modifying. And I have a suspicion that there is a, a fundamental minimum to that difference of complexity. In other words, that a program of complexity X just cannot create a program of complexity greater than X or even greater than X minus some constant whatever. Again, this is absolutely a hunch, but if it's true, then we can kiss goodbye to the idea of recursive self-improvement. And that would make me rather happy because it would mean that we wouldn't have to worry about unfriendly AI with that property. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that we don't get to a singularity if we define the singularity in other ways. If we define the singularity simply in terms of, the adv of technology advancing so rapidly that we cannot constructively predict where it's going to go, then we're in a somewhat more modest scenario in which we could have human beings actually participating in an, an, an absolutely intrinsic and indispensable way in the process of advancement of technology, such that we do intrinsically retain control over the rate at which it advances, but yet, because there's so many people involved in contributing to those advances, any single individual will constantly be surprised by what they discover has suddenly come into existence the following day. And I think it would be reasonable to describe that as the singularity too. I understand. Um, let's go back to your own personal work in life extension technologies. And let me ask you, have your ideas evolved in any way ever since you became gerontologist? Or what was the most surprising 
thing that you discovered since you became one? Well, I've been pretty lucky in that respect, actually. I came into gerontology having no real preconception about how we might go about combating aging. And I spent perhaps five years at the beginning of my gerontology career really just learning stuff. And of course, I was publishing stuff during that period. I was um, coming up with new explanations for existing data and so on. But the basic concept underlying sense, in other words, the idea that it might be easier to actually rejuvenate people to repair the molecular and cellular damage of aging rather than to slow down the creation of that damage by, if you like, cleaning up metabolism. That basic concept has survived intact. I, it was something that I realized in the summer of 2000, 10 years ago now, and it has certainly gone from strength to strength in that time as the ideas of exactly how one might go about repairing particular aspects of age-related damage have been increasingly fleshed out and increasingly inspected by other scientists and, of course, worked on by scientists. So I haven't really gone through any um, transition where I had a fundamental surprise. Um, there are, of course, plenty of much more minor surprises that come out during the progress of biotechnology all the time. And my, the things that surprise me are not really very different than the things that surprise most biologists. For example, it was an extremely nice surprise when we discovered that we could take adult cells and de-differentiate them back into an embryonic stem cell state just by exposing them to four different proteins all at the same time. As I'm sure you know, the Japanese researcher Shinya Yamanaka discovered about four years ago now. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of fundamental surprises, no, that hasn't actually happened. And if there is one thing that our listeners ought to take away from this podcast interview with you today, what would you like it to be? I guess the fundamental thing I want listeners to take away from it is that, because I'm, I'm fairly sure that most listeners to a podcast like this will have no difficulty understanding that aging is bad for you and that we would we, we should fix it if we can. I think the main thing I want listeners to take away is that we are really pretty close to really doing this. And furthermore, that we're pretty close, maybe only a few decades away from doing it for people who are already in middle age at the time that the therapies are developed so that people already alive today will actually benefit from this. And the question that is uppermost in my mind and should be uppermost in the minds of all your listeners is the question of when those technologies will be developed because that determines how many of the people alive today will benefit from them the fact is that 150,000 people die every day from all causes added together and out of those 150,000 two-thirds 100,000 die of aging in other words they die of causes that young adults predominantly do not die of um, in the developed world, the percentage is much higher than two-thirds. It's about 90%. So this is, by an enormous margin, the biggest health problem facing humanity today. I would say that it's the biggest problem facing humanity today. And those of your listeners who like working on hard problems or even who like helping other people to work on hard problems should therefore go away and recognize that and just think what they can do to help. And, of course, go to sense.org have a look at what we say you can do, have a look at what we are doing. And if you want to get in touch with us, then you always can. We have obviously contact information on the site. 
that sounds fantastic. But let me keep you just for another minute and ask you the last question pertaining to what you just said, namely, where do you think would be the cutoff point for people who are able to take advantage of those um, life-extending or anti-aging technologies that you are talking about? At the moment, it's obviously very speculative, like any technology that's more than a couple of years away, what the time frame is really going to be. But I think we have a 50-50 chance of getting to longevity escape velocity within about 25 years from now. And I'm damn certain that by that time, the enthusiasm for all of this concept will be sufficient that when these technologies are become available to anybody, they will pretty much at once become available to everybody. So that's the sort of number we need to look at. And these technologies ought to work for pretty much anyone below the age of 60, probably for people up in the 70s if they're um, uh, averagely healthy. So that gives you some idea. But of course, I want to emphasize how speculative this is. We could get unlucky with these things. We could find a whole bunch of new obstacles that we haven't thought of yet and we haven't discovered yet. And it could be 100 years before we get to longevity escape velocity. I would say that there's at least a 10% chance of that. Luckily, of course, there are, as we've mentioned today, plenty of other approaches, including artificial intelligence and molecular manufacturing that are also being developed. And maybe they'll get there first in that case. But the sooner we plug away on all of these things, I would say, especially on the biotechnological approach, the sooner we will actually start saving lives this way. On that note, I would like to thank Dr. DeGray once again for his time and wish him good luck in his quest to defeat aging. I know that for myself, I'm not too eager to put an expiration date on my life. Also, thanks to all the listeners of Singularity Podcast, and I hope that you all enjoyed listening to this interview as much as I enjoyed talking to Dr. Aubrey de Grey. This was another Singularity podcast, which is a regular feature of singularityweblog.com, where you can go and listen to the recording or download the interview in full. Thank you. Thank you very much.